have a wonderful house on the rim. And in this house, you have a really large window. And from that window, you get a front seat view to the dazzling lights of the Inland Empire at night. You get to see the the dramatic oranges and purples as the sun dips into the Pacific in the afternoons. On a clear day, you can even see from your vantage point through this window the jagged fingers of downtown L.A. knifing into the sky as if trying to bring heaven down. You get a front seat to all of this when the storms roll in. On certain days, when the light is right, you can see ships on the Pacific Ocean. You can even see Catalina Island. And you get to see some of the wildlife, deer and bears and mountain lions scurrying about. A front seat view through this window to all of this grandeur. You love this window. And you take your coffee sitting in front of this window every morning. And you read your magazines and books right by this window every evening. Or you eat your ice cream. But it, it amazes you how much this window that you love and the, and the view you get to see through it, it amazes you how often it attracts foreign substances. For example, just the other day, as you're sitting in front of the window, you notice some bird droppings on it. And you think, well, that's, that's kind of interrupting me. So you grab your bucket and you go outside and you rub that bird off, that bird's dropping off. And then you get back down and you, you enjoy the view again. A few days later, after a big rainstorm, you notice all the water streaks. You go, and so the bucket comes out again and you clean it off again. Then Thanksgiving rolls around and you're hosting and you got all your nephews and nieces and your grandchildren over and they're loving the view and seeing all the birds outside and they're pointing and of course as they do, they touch the window and they're picking their nose and then they're, look at that. And, the, and the, the greasy turkey is not yet wiped off their hands, but the window's sure happy to take it. And they go home, and as soon as the door shuts, you bring the bucket out, and you're cleaning that window again. You love this window. But over time, your love for it has become an obsession over it. And you try your best to keep this window clean. You begin to research what is the best soap I can use that will get that scum off yet leave no streaks? And you buy the finest soap you can. You get a ladder to reach those hard places. Soon you learn that it's easier just to construct some scaffolding around the outside of the window so you can get those hard-to-reach corners and get the cobwebs and make sure it's clean. And soon enough, you realize you have the best window in North America the cleanest window in North America. But it's been a long time since you've looked through the window. You have become a Pharisee. Let's look at these chapters, and then let's look at the way the Pharisees oppose Jesus and his way in some very condensed sections here. All in these two chapters, opposition. And my friend, you're going to follow the way of Jesus? Expect opposition. The way of Jesus is not one among the many others. It's not paralleling other ways and saying, we're just a little bit faster. It's going the other way. Expect opposition. So in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And you know the story well. The house is packed. The friends who have a paralytic lying on his bed cannot get in because of the crowd. And so they go through the roof. They rip the roof off and they lower their friend to Jesus. And what does he say to him? In verse 5, son, your sins are forgiven. This is the way of Jesus. Coming to him and having everything that has ruined your life and crippled your life being removed and forgiven. But there are other ways that are going to oppose this way. So, 
some of the scribes, these are the, the, the comrades of the Pharisees, were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Now, this is the first of many questions you're going to see. Why does this man speak like that? He can't say that. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. Now, Levi, we also know his other name is Matthew. Now, he's a tax collector. This means he's betrayed his Jewish friends to get money from the Roman Empire and take their money. Not a good place. People didn't like these tax collectors. Yet Jesus comes and says, follow me. And he follows him. Now, they have a dinner. Matthew, well, the best friends he has are the riffraff of society because None of the religious folk want to hang out with a tax collector. So Matthew's left with the bottom of the barrel, rich though he is. And of course, what kind of friends do you have if they're the bottom of the barrel and you're rich? They just want my stuff. But he's throwing a feast with them because of the Jesus whom he met. And look at verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with, their terms, sinners and tax collectors, said to Jesus' disciples, another question, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is my way. I am here to lift people up, not to affirm the already lifted up. Pharisees, Jesus, the ways are opposing one another. Verse 18 Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus has to explain to them, Look, you're at a wedding. Do you fast, or do you eat to celebrate the union of the bride and the groom? Obviously, you eat. It's a good time. You have a new piece of cloth. You're going to put it on some old garments. Do you just put it on without shrinking the piece of cloth? Of course not. Because if you wash the whole thing, then the, the new piece of cloth is going to shrink and make the tear worse in the garment. You have new wine. Do you put it in old wineskins? Of course not. The old wineskins are already stretched out. So when the new wine ferments and it causes the bloating, the skins will burst. Jesus is telling them, look, I've come to do a new thing. You've been walking this path forever. The dirt's turned into concrete. You've trodden over it so many times. I'm leading a new path, and it's going the way that you left a while ago. Come with me. Okay? Then in verse 23, on Sabbath, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Oh, no. You can't work on the Sabbath, which means you can't prepare food. Technically, by taking these grains to eat them, they got to take the husks off. Oh, that's processed food. You've worked. As if the Pharisees had nothing better to do than to follow Jesus around and nail him for infractions. Suddenly they pop up and say, Aha! Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Another question. Jesus corrects them and says, well, even David went into the temple and ate bread he wasn't supposed to eat. And then in verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, okay, Pharisees, the Sabbath for you has become something that we must serve. It is, it's our, the Sabbath is our master. So we've got to do what it says and obey its laws. But Jesus is saying, it was always meant to be that the Sabbath was to serve us. We are already worked by the age of this world. The Sabbath was our freedom to say, yes, God is different than the world. It serves us. You got it all backwards. But see, in your, in your efforts to keep the window clean, you had forgotten the purpose of the window. They had stopped looking through it and have begun looking at it. 
when you look at the Sabbath, it'll be master over you. It'll tell you what you can and cannot do. But if you look through the Sabbath, you see the one to whom it's pointing, Christ, our rest. And Jesus is here showing them that their way has gone astray. Chapter 3, our fifth conflict. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Please notice. They don't ask Jesus a single question this time. They've gone from questioning to assuming. Not, why does he do this? What's he up to, this weirdo? He's going against our ways. They're assuming he's in the wrong. Friends, that's a dangerous place when the questions about God turn into assumptions about God. It's a dangerous place. And now they're going to see, is he going to heal this withered, this guy with the withered hand on the Sabbath? He asked the guy to stretch out his hand. And he has to expose this embarrassingly withered hand, this what they would have imagined was God's curse upon this soul for sinning. And Jesus then sees it become whole right before him. And without a word, the Pharisees march out of the synagogue, a religious service, and march out of the synagogue to collaborate with the Herodians, a political party, on how to murder Jesus. It's just gotten really intense. That's what's happened. Chapter 3, verse 7. So we saw five episodes of opposition. Now we're going to get a little bit of a break from the opposition before we return to it. The eye of the storm. 3-7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Edumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. With the great crowd, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. They are so excited about the way Jesus is paving through the wilderness. It's different than the Pharisees. We're seeing something new here, something alive, something... It's like there's a window with a view we didn't know was there before. And they're seeing, and they're excited, and the crowds are gathering, and they're pressing Jesus to the point he's backed up to the sea, and he has nowhere to go but a boat, so that there's a little bit of distance, lest he be squeezed to death. The crowds are growing. The Pharisees... Concern about Jesus, the bird pooper. That's how they see him. They're mess- He's messing up our window. All they can do is try to wipe him off. And yet the people are pressing in. The crowds are growing. And you would think that Jesus would say, All right, the time has come. My kingdom is ready. I have enough. The crowd is mine. Well, that's, that's what really notorious leaders do in history. They get the crowd, and then they do their damage. Jesus is going to do something radically different. He's already been causing trouble because he's doing things differently than the Pharisees' way. His way is different. Now he's going to turn his back on the crowd. Look at verse 13. And he went up. Oh, you know what? Why don't we go to verse 11? Uh, and whenever the unclean spirit saw him and fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So, shh, there's a quiet policy. Don't publish me. Then, verse 13, he went up on the mountain. So he's retreating. He's going where not anyone's going to follow him. Only a few will go up the mountain. And he went up on the mountain and there called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve. That's right. There was a crowd, and now there's twelve. Not twelve hundred, not twelve thousand. Twelve. All right, Jesus, all right. Let me explain to you how the way of the world works. You see, when you get a crowd, what you do is, Jesus is like, nope. I'm going to reduce the crowd to 12. Okay, so it says, And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. 
Here's what we see about the way of Jesus. It's an uncrowded way. The crowd squeezes, the crowd presses, the crowd looks really good. Ooh, look where everybody else is. Let's go there. That must be the true thing. Look at the crowd. But the crowd cannot be known. The crowd cannot be personalized. The crowd must simply be managed and controlled. You give them rules and legislation so that they do the right thing in the right place at the right time. But the crowd cannot be known intimately. So what Jesus does is he says, look, the Pharisees have their way. They have their crowd control. They're all about keeping Israel in line with the law of God so that we have his favor. But the way of Jesus is going the other direction. And despite the crowd, he says, I want to have 12 so that they can be with me. So that they can learn my ways, know my way And teach that to others. Their names. It's not a faceless crowd, a nameless crowd. It's in verse 17. uh, 16. Simon, James, John, the brother of James. 18. It's Andrew. It's Philip. It's Bartholomew. It's Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Whoever remembers Thaddeus, we do tonight. He was named the Thadster. And Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Even Judas is named. These are the 12, and they have names, and more than the names, some of it I skipped, but there are details about them, including their father, their nicknames, the thing they're known for. They're named, they're known, and they get to know Jesus and be with Jesus. That's the way of Jesus. It's not a crowded, pressed, squeezed, rule-laden way. It's a relational way with openness and names and getting to know histories. It's people walking alongside one another. It's not how many people can we amass? How many can we convince? It's who can we walk with and who can we disciple and who can we impart the life of God that has given to us to them? That's the uncrowded Jesus way. To him, the 12 are greater than the crowd. He can do more with 12 people who get to know him and be with him than he can do with the crowd that you just kind of sprinkle a doctrine over and say, believe these things and you'll change the world. But why is it? Why is it that we think the way of the crowd? Why is it that we think that if we just get enough people believing the right thing, the world will change? Jesus has shown us, Mark is trying to invite us and show us that it is through relationship, it's through the names we know and the people we rub shoulders with, that is where the way goes. And it is through them that it gets imparted. Relationship over rule, the way of Jesus over the way of the Pharisees. We're back to opposition. Of course, you're going to do things this weird. People are going to tell you you're doing it wrong, you're out of your mind. That's exactly what happens. Verse 20, then he went home. Never works out well when he goes home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now you thought your parents were disappointed with your career choice. (laughs) You got nothing on Jesus. He's not only got a weird path, but he's got a weird way of doing his path. And of course, the family here is partly concerned because what they're thinking is, we have a son who can do miracles? He's bringing a crowd? Oh my goodness. Imagine if we set up our home as sort of a brokerage or sort of like a headquarters and people came to our son, got healed. We just took just a mere little denarii or something, just a little penny. And uh, we blessed them and they went on their way. And word got around and soon Jerusalem's coming to us and everybody's coming to us. And we are no longer these little peasants. We are now somebodies. We're now somebodies. Everybody knows our name. And we're going to get powerful through our son. What a dream. Until the son says, shh, don't tell anybody what I'm doing. And oh, by the way, I'm only going to have 12 close to me. Oh, and I'm not going to stay at home. I'm going to travel around so that we can never establish a power center. 
See, the way is not about stationary. It's not about collecting a mass to its position. The way keeps moving. The way is a journey and it ebbs and it flows and it has circumstances and seasons. It's moving and we ought to all be moving through life and changing and growing. That's what Jesus was doing. Now the opposition continues. 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, so his family said he's out of his mind. They say something a little worse. He is possessed by Beelzebul. That was uh, sort of like this, this demonic lord of power. Um, Sauron, if you like the Lord of the Rings. Or others, if you like other great stories with dark powers. And they're also saying, by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Whoa, okay. Well, Jesus has two problems with this. First, he called them to him and said to them in parables, <laughs> How can Satan cast out Satan? No answer. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, you really think I'm ripping off Satan's power to fight Satan? That's a lose-lose. Here's a better scenario. I am a strong, I have come and I've bound up the strong man, Satan, and I'm plundering his goods. I'm taking the demon-possessed people and the, the broken people and the hurting people and the people who need healing, and I'm casting off the works of sin and unrighteousness. I'm plundering the devil's house. That's a better narrative. So that's his first problem. What you're saying is not even rational. Not even rational. And much of the arguments against the way of Jesus often are irrational. The rational Given conditions, if you make up the rules of what rationality is, okay, yeah, then you can make up any philosophy that makes sense within your rules. But apart from those rules, Jesus is showing you guys are making up your own game, and it's not fair. And verse 28, a second problem. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Troublesome verse for people. I guarantee if you're troubled by that verse, you are not troubled by that verse. You did not commit the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. The way I see it, what Jesus is saying is the religious experts are so stuck in their way as being the right way that anytime they see someone doing it another way, they have to condemn that as being the wrong way. That's the wrong way. And so they go as far as saying, what Jesus is doing is Satan's work. I think you've heard people say things like that. What's unforgivable is not saying that Jesus is working dark magic. I think that you can be diluted and then be saved and see, see the light and be forgiven of that, right? People have said some bad things about God, but then get forgiven. That happens. What's unforgivable is that if you continually insist that your way is the right way and every other way, which would therefore naturally include the Jesus way, is the wrong way, then you will never find the way to forgiveness because your path won't get there. And so, these religious scholars, stuck in their way, polishing their window until it shines perfectly and blinds them, that will never save them. And then, we come back to more opposition. Back to the family. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. We don't even want to be seen with him. (laughs) And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my sister, my brother, and my sister and mother. In other words, hey, whoever is walking the way with me, they are my family. Nobody gets privilege here. Nobody inherently is better than another. Those walking the way with me are all my mother's brothers and sisters. 
That's quite a place to be. But notice, too, the intimacy that those walking the way of Jesus are named. They're part of family. They're not just another number to accumulate God's power. And I fear that as we hear the numbers that Christianity is in decline in our nation and that agnosticism is on the rise, that's the belief in nothing, it's on the rise, uh, that the churches are shrinking, the generational dropout of church is high, that this, this present generation, like 8 out of 10, will drop out of the church. As we hear all that, yes, it sounds depressing, it's disheartening, but what we need to understand is that God is not somehow depressed or disheartened by it. God was never, and we sometimes walk around thinking this and acting this way and pleading on his behalf as if God is insecure about the number of followers he has. He is not more hallowed or more solidified or more real or more powerful or more glorious because he has more followers than anything else. He's look, he looks great when even just 12 get to know him and follow him on his way and do things differently. That is what looks good. It just 12 will do it. He just wants family that loves each other, embraces each other, helps each other, walks on the way together, and that when another stumbles, we pick each other up and clean the wound and keep going. We eat together on the way. That is what he wants in the world. The numbers? Five billion followers, two billion followers, 200, whatever. He's looking for mothers and brothers and sisters. He's looking for those who want to be named and walk along cite him. But the poor Pharisees. <laughs> I chuckle because we like to villainize the Pharisees, don't we? Every good story needs a villain. And so we pick out the Pharisees. Well, and let's be fair. Mark does the exact same thing. He makes them look evil. He makes them look like they just don't get Jesus. But he also makes the disciples look that way. We villainize the Pharisees because, well, we need, well, they do. They oppose Jesus in his way. But I want us to be careful that we don't demonize the Pharisees. They were not evil. They were simply stuck to cleaning their window so that they forgot to look through it. The Pharisees actually played an incredibly important role in Israel's history. That without the Pharisees, Israel may have been swallowed by godless paganism. So you flash back to roughly 200 years before Jesus and to really truncate a complex story plot, what you essentially have is the, rem- the residue of Alexander the Great's empire is coming to Jerusalem. Now remember Alexander the Great. He conquers much of the world. But what was most impressive about Alexander the Great was not his military campaigns, although he was a brilliant genius on that. It was what he left behind everywhere he conquered. He left behind what is called Hellenism. Hellenism is the word for Greek culture, Greek thought, the Greek way of life. He Hellenized. He didn't just conquer the peoples. He Hellenized the peoples. He gave them the Greek way. And so throughout the world, there was, a, there was another path, another way forged through the wilderness of the world. And it was called Hellenism, the Greek way. So everyone began to value what the Greeks valued, thought the way the Greeks thought. And you know how the Greeks thought in a nutshell? They put humanity at the center of everything. Humanity is the glory of the world. Humanity has the power to make everything better. They glorified the human. The Greek way, Hellenism, was a godless threat to Israel. It was the glorification of humanity. And so roughly 200 years before Jesus, the Greek way was starting to press into Jerusalem. Because you see, the ruler of the time was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, because his kingdom was located in Antioch, up there in Syria, and Epiphanes, because it means the manifest one. In other words, the gods have manifested their will through me. Nice guy. Antiochus Epiphanes comes, and he begins to pressure the Jews, because his kingdom has two threats. Antiochus's kingdom is being pressured by this coming army, this growing country called Rome. 
And it's beginning to press in and take some ground in his kingdom. So he needs money to pay the Romans off. Hey, leave me alone. Here, how much do I have to pay you? Okay, leave me alone. So he would go around his kingdom and loot the temples. And Jerusalem's temple was no exception. He would loot the sacred artifacts and the gold and take it and sell, off, uh, sell it to the Romans, say, leave us alone now. That was his first problem. His second problem was within his kingdom, he had divisions. So he needed to unify his people around a common culture, a common way. And so what did he pick? He picked the Greek way. He picked Hellenism. And who fought against Hellenism? The Jews. The Jews had their own way. They had their own code of conduct. They had the law of Moses, and they were zealous for it. So Antiochus Epiphany comes into Jerusalem and says, all right, everyone, I am the will of the gods. You're going to do as I say. We're all going to adopt Hellenism, the Greek way. So he threw scrolls of their scriptures into the streets and burned them. He outlawed circumcision, which made a Jew a Jew, and he outlawed the keeping of the Sabbath. And he even sacrificed a pig in the temple. Now, pigs were one of, the, one of the unclean animals that the Jews would not go near. And to sacrifice a pig to Zeus on Yahweh's altar was the offense of the offenses. And so a revolt begins as a result. But that's not the history we're interested in this week. What we're interested in is the opposition movement within Jerusalem that started up in this period. As the Greek way, as Hellenism was pressured and pressed upon the Jews, give in to this way, give in to this way. The godless ways of putting humanity first. There was a group of Jews, a sect of Jews, who remained devoted and loyal to God's word no matter what the leaders or the culture was saying. And they became known among the Jews as the separate ones, which is the word Pharisee. The Pharisees, in a very dangerous time of Israel, when the seas of paganism and the Greek Hellenistic way were coming and threatening to drown them and choke them and choke God out of them, the Pharisees stood and said, No, the storm will not defeat us. We will build a shelter. We will build a house. And we will weather this storm. They became the leaders. And so they laid a foundation with Moses' law. And they said, this is what we're going to found our life upon. The law of Moses, as God is revealed through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is our foundation. And they began to build the shelter. They started to put the walls up on every side to keep the winds and the waters away from, from drowning God out of them. And they erected the walls by practicing their foundation, by practicing the Torah. So what did they start to do? They started to demand that the Jews keep the Sabbath. We must keep the ways of God and not follow the Greek ways. So the wall of the Sabbath went up. We must, despite what they say, we must circumcise our children. So the other wall of circumcision went up. And then they said, we must, we must, we must eat clean food. None of this pig stuff that the Greeks are bringing to us. We must eat the food that Moses commanded us to eat in Leviticus chapter 11. And so the food of kosher diet went up. And then the last wall was, do not eat with the unclean people either. Must eat clean food and eat with clean company. And so they said, do not eat with sinners. Do not eat with those who betray the word of God or the law of God. Do not eat with those who are not Jews. And the last wall went up. And they were safe and sound in their shelter. Well, you can see that their intentions were good. And that they saved the way of God in the midst of its threat. But like our window... It presented a beautiful view of living. But as the time goes on, two centuries roll by. <sighs> that darn storm from the Greeks get to keep cleaning these windows. As time goes by, the way of God that they devoted themselves to became their way. It became our effort our interpretations of the law, our demands on the people to keep it. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene and walks into the shelter, it has a full-blown roof on the top. They've arrived. They have found their home. 
and they're living in this way of life. You can see, can't you, now why they have problems with Jesus. He wants to forgive the paralytic of his sins, but they're like, no, you don't. Nope. There's a place where God has ordained forgiveness, and it's in the temple. He wants to have Levi eat with him and the sinners and tax collectors say, nope. Did you remember the fourth wall that you can only eat clean food with clean company? How dare you eat with this riffraff? Fasting, another one of the walls to practice. Ah, why are you not fasting? All the Sabbath, you're breaking that very important wall we built over here. How dare you? You're threatening the way of God. You're going to bring the ways of wickedness into this place. But they've lost the vision, haven't they? They got so concerned with keeping the house intact in the storm that they forgot the purpose of the house. The house became their destination. And so you put the roof on it because you're like, we're here to stay. This isn't a temporary thing to weather the storm. This is heaven on earth. This means we've arrived and we are going to love the people who arrive and criticize those that haven't arrived. They're not in the house. How dare them? So imagine, if you will, what a house provides. A house provides definition. You know where you are. You have an address. You have physical space. You have walls, a floor, ceiling. You know the defined space, right? A house also brings safety. It's safe within, it might be dangerous without, but here we have safety. A house brings predictability. You know what happens in your house. There's an established ritual in your house, a predictable pattern of routines. It's not like that, though, if you're on the road, when you're traveling. You know how people always say, right? They come back from their vacations, like, it's so good to be back. Because the road is different than the house. The road is not predictable. You don't know where your next meal is coming from or when it will be, and you sure don't know how much it will cost, depending on where you're vacationing. You don't know if it's safe as you travel and navigate the subway system of some downtown city that we mountain bumpkins are foreign to. <laughs> I know I've done it. <laughs> it's confusing. We are not defined on the road. You know, your favorite types of food. You don't always get to, if you're on a diet, you know how hard traveling can be. And how easy non-dieting is. Oh, but we're on vacation. We never eat Ben and Jerry's. Let's do it. You know, there's always an exception when you're on the road. And we get back to normal when we're at home. Yeah, there's less definition. There's less structure. There's less routine in your life. That's why we love the road for a moment, but we yearn to get back to home. This has become the difference between the way of Jesus and the Pharisees. They love their home, their safety, their definition, their predictability. But the way of Jesus seems so undefined. He's breaking rules. It's not safe. They're so It seems, from their perspective, so godless. It's, it's so surprising. It's unpredictable. Who knows what he's going to say next or who's going to be with him? Or what kind of a crazy person will show up and he will heal them? Who knows what's going to happen? So the Pharisees don't like this because they're into crowd control and Jesus is into relationships. And crowd control cannot handle the one-on-one relationship because it's not predictable. There's no set way. You know that, friends? You know that we cannot help one another in our walks with God the same way we help the other five people? We're all different. We have to know our backgrounds the way God made us, and what we need. And we need to walk with one another in that way. We cannot spit people in and out, like let's say I'm doing like a counseling marathon, and we just spit people in and out, I'm like, all right, yep, yeah, you too. Read your Bible and pray, go. 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 Like, what is that? That's an assembly line. I'm a manufacturer. I might as well be making Ford cars. Both break down either way, but... I need, to, I need to get to hear your story. Hear what are the struggles. And hear how are you going to do the things I'm asking you to do. Or what do you need in your life. There needs to be listening. There needs to be relationship. There needs to be trust. There needs to be let's walk through that together and see how it's going as we practice this and see if, it, if it's working out for you. House versus the road. Or the way of Jesus versus the way of the Pharisees. So... 
all that to say, I hope you see that the Pharisees were well-intended, but they had become too obsessed about the window streaks, right? And forgot the view. Or, to go back to the other metaphor, they were too safe and comfortable in their home and didn't like the unpredictability of the way of Jesus. In other words, the home served a purpose, but now it had grown too old. It was time to move out of that temporary shelter and follow Jesus on the way to the next destination. Pharisee, you haven't arrived. Rip that roof off. Let those walls down. You haven't arrived. The way of Jesus says to all of us, we haven't arrived. We are on a journey and we're still walking it. And the minute you think you've arrived, you are a Pharisee. And when you've arrived, you're always pointing out those who haven't arrived. Those who don't have their act together yet and how to get it together. You always got to be like me, brother. So the house is too old. So I want to finish by turning our attention to the first story in chapter 2. Because we need to be riff, uh, Ruth Rippers. That's the solution here. Roof rippers. So in chapter 2, we're going to now look at the story. Um, we breeze through it. But this is what we need. And what I see here is in microcosm. It's a little, little tiny example of what I've been talking about at large. The house is the way of the Pharisee. The cozy comfort. We got our doctrines down. We've got our way of life set. Right? We got crowd control. It's the way of the Pharisee. The way of Jesus is the four who carry the paralytic through the roof. Okay? All right, let's read it. So, Jesus returns. 2 verse 1. He returns to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So, the way the Pharisees, with all their, you know, they had, they were the pressure group over the majority of Israel. They had the ear and the attention of the majority of Israel. Everybody cared what the Pharisees thought and taught. So, they were the crowded room. They were the crowded house. They were the happening spot. And if Jesus was to come and partner with anybody in Israel, the Pharisees were the appropriate people to partner with. Instead, he forges his own way. So the Pharisees had the crowds. And you and I, we need to be careful that we aren't just simply persuaded by, ooh, that's where the crowds are. But the crowd was there. Now Jesus, though, of course, he comes to the Pharisees, right? He's preaching in their midst. And that's what he's been doing through the Gospels. Is he's going wherever the Pharisees have control, and he begins teaching people, and they're like, that's not what we said. That's not the way we like it. No, you can't do that. He's in their house. He's in their territory. He's around their influence. He's in the midst of their crowd, and he's preaching the word. Does it feel a little stuffy in this house? Oh, yes. Very stuffy. And it's not just because the person next to you ate chili for lunch. It's because there is tension. There are two different ways battling as Jesus is in the crowded house. It's almost like the wineskin is too old to handle this new way, this new message. Or the old garment can't handle the new patch that's sewn on it. There's a wedding happening and Jesus wants to eat and the Pharisees want to fast. That's what's happening Verse 4, verse 3. And they came. Who's they? I hope you, you appreciate the abruptness of it. There's no name for this, art, for this pronoun here. And they came. Who's they? This is our introduction to them. They, you know, they. It's almost as if this was expected. If Jesus and the Pharisees are together, expect some turbulence. They came. They are the followers of the way. The 12, right? It's like the 12. It's like these are those that get the way of Jesus. And they came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. They removed the roof. They ripped it open. The Pharisees were cozy. The four walls were up. Their foundation had been laid, and they finally put the roof up. The last thing you put on the, found, the whole thing. 
They put the roof up because we've arrived. Our crowning achievement. We've got the people under the law of God. <laughs> what? Do you hear that? Voices. Jesus, shh. There's footsteps. You hear the creaking of the sticks up there? And then scratching, scraping. And then the blinding light comes through the hole and hits their eyes. Oh, you thought your little house was predictable. Surprise! The way of Jesus has come. And so they lay the man, the bed is lowered. And when Jesus, this is verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's the way of Jesus. But the way the Pharisee says, whoa, wait a minute, breaking rules here. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, obviously the latter is harder because you need proof. <laughs> right? You either fail or you don't. You can say your sins are forgiven. You're like, Oh, I guess they are. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Yeah, because this is the way of Jesus. And you've been cooped up in the house of the Pharisees for too long. They are ecstatic. And so, friends, this is the way of Jesus. Notice, notice that it said in verse 5, Jesus is ecstatic, by the way. He's like, oh, the stuffy place that the Pharisees have made. And then the roof opens up and he sees them lowering the guy in the bed. And while the owners of the house, all these residents packed in like, no, the sofa. No, we just vacuumed. Everything was in order. Jesus, on the other hand, is like, oh, this is so great. And he's coming down. And notice that what he sees is in verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, the they, the there, the four carrying the cot, not him on the cot. When he saw their faith, he said to him, be forgiven. This is so cool. Because here we have the person who cannot walk on the way of Jesus. He doesn't know the way of Jesus. He cannot walk on it yet. He needs to meet Jesus. Then he gets up and he walks. And notice where he walks. He doesn't dance around the room. He walks right out of the room right out of the house. He's on the way of Jesus. But he looks at them, the ones carrying this man who meets Jesus and then walks on his way, because they are the ones who had been walking on the way already. Their faith, it says, faith says, all right, Pharisees have their house, they have their defined walls, their roof. Everything's answerable right here. It's all figured out. But faith sees that and says, yes, and. To faith, there's always an and. There's always more than meets the eye. There's always something beyond the closed, stuffy walls of religion. Faith says, okay, all that's right and true. The the Pharisees got a good thing going on here. And there's something beyond this that we're missing. Faith says the window is magnificent, but come and look through it for a change. Yes, and. The Pharisee says, mm, but, 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 but. No, 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 Don't, no. We put that table there for a reason. No coffee mugs on the table without a coaster. Here you go. Take your shoes off over there. That's not where coats go. They go over there. The four had the faith to think of something different. Can you imagine for a minute? You're coming and you're like, oh, great. We got this friend. We got to take him to Jesus to get healed. Come on, Billy, Bob, and Joe, let's carry this thing and let's take him to Jesus. Oh, there's a crowd. Pharisees always have a way of blocking the way to Jesus. The faith was that they didn't give up. The faith was that they said, wait a minute. 
The way of Jesus goes through the wilderness. There's nothing that's going to stop it. There's a way here. And then Joe says, the roof! And Billy's like, that's genius! And you're like, yeah, let's try it. And they were not worried about who would be angry about it. They just said, all right, we're going to rip this roof off. And so, friends, this is the way Jesus, is that when the way gets a bit crowded out with religion and with the Pharisee way of doing things and predictability and safety and control, the way of Jesus says, nope, we can go around the crowd. We can go through the roof. We'll rip the roof off. And if you feel like you're in a stuffy little house, let's rip the roof off. If you've never been amazed, if you haven't been amazed in a while, let's rip the roof off. This is the way of Jesus. It's surprising. It doesn't follow the way of the crowd. And so, I wonder what would happen if we, you know what we usually do is we usually have it backwards. We usually have one person praying for four people, don't we? I know my four people I want to get saved. But what if we did it the way we see it in this parable and that we had four of us for every cot. Think about this. Then we're, we're a family, and we're all in together. It's not some personal person's little, I have this friend, I'm praying for them, but it's, it's we. We have this family member that we're praying for. And you know how comfortable we get on our cots, on our beds, on our couches? Oh yeah, I heard about this thing, this God thing that's going on on Sunday nights, but you know, Sunday night football's on right now. Or the World Series will be on next Sunday. You know, I, I'm just, the couch is so comfy. So that one person invites you, like, yeah, Joe Buck and the gang are broadcasting the game. Um, then two people invite you, like, oh, okay, maybe I should go sometime. Three, four. When four people are involved, they get to pick the bed up. All right, you're not getting off the couch, we'll take the couch with us. <laughs> and it's true. If you notice, it usually takes a few invites before a person. Or you've heard the whole thing about salvation. They reject the first message, but a few times later, the seed begins to grow. What if, what if we had names and people and we said, all right, four to one, let's do this. Can't lose. And what if we got, see, that way we get to know the person's name. We get to know their story, their history, what their needs are. Jesus knew. The guy didn't just need to walk. He needed his sins forgiven. He saw something there. Something I want to throw out there. Maybe we share people we're praying for, concerned with together, and we get teams of a minimum of four praying and reaching out. What would happen? Oh, that's not the way to grow a crowd. I know, it's one person at a time. But 12 is enough. 12 is better than a crowd. And I want to walk on that way. The uncrowded way that brings healing in life. Lord, we thank you for giving us your life.